Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market with a leading individual from the insurance world. And this week, we have Brendan McGurk with us, uh, and our topic will be big data and data profiling within the insurance world. Brendan is a barrister at Moncton Chambers, uh, but don't worry, we're not going to be discussing law today, at least not much of it. Um, And he's the co-author of Professional Indemnity Insurance, uh, alongside Mark Cannon QC, uh, which is, in my opinion, the best book on insurance law. Um, However, the reason why we're speaking with Brendan today is because he has recently published a book called Data Profiling and Insurance Law. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Peter, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Did you ever consider any career other than uh, as a barrister? Well, in 1991, the plan was to become Pearl Jam's next drummer, but that didn't work out. Um, How far did you get with that ambition? A draft letter. (laughs) And then they hired a guy called Dave Abruzzese and the rest was history. But by age 15, 16, I had pretty much alighted upon the law as a potential career. I had an uncle in Northern Ireland where I grew up who was a circuit judge. Um, This was, of course, pre-Good Friday. And going to his house was like going to a military fortress and protection judges need in those days but civil liberties and human rights was very much in the public consciousness around that time and I did a couple of internships related to Bloody Sunday and I moved towards the bar from there really. Wow fascinating and but insurance law is is a little bit niche and not necessarily linked to to any any of those sorts of issues. How how did you get into insurance law? Well I I partly blame the said Mark Cannon QC for that. I I was a barrister for uh, many happy years at Four New Square Chambers. I sat with Mark for about two years and he had the idea of writing an insurance book and at the time I was practicing partly in public law and partly in insurance and professional indemnity, uh, professional liability work. And it, it really went from there. And, and now you're stuck with it. Well, it's it's interesting having a mixed practice. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and as I've mentioned, we're going to be discussing your book, uh, Data Profiling and Insurance Law, which has been recently published. Uh, now, it has to be said, over the last few weeks, when uh, I, people have asked me what I'm reading, and I, and I tell them, they all give me that sympathetic look, you know, the one where people give you when you mention the, the death of a close family member. And um, so I can only imagine what it must have been like uh, for you when you told people what you're writing about. So forgive me for being a little bit blunt, uh, but whatever possessed you to write a book about data profiling and insurance? Well, I was thinking about good faith and the duties of good faith when Mark and I were putting together the second edition of Professional Indemnity Insurance. And we were thinking about the impact of the Insurance Act 2015, but the penny really dropped in the context of a competition law case that I was doing at the time. And it was in the context of thinking about online markets in that case and how data was being gathered as an input by suppliers on those markets that it occurred to me that a core rationale for the imposition of the duty of good faith in insurance may no longer hold where insurers and other service providers had access to so much data and indeed personal data about individual consumers. So that's when I thought I could marry up what at that stage were two disparate sides of my practice, namely data law and insurance law. And that's the genesis of the book. Absolutely. And I have to say, it is a fascinating and slightly terrifying book in places. It, it, it is truly illuminating. So, That's yes, kind of thank you. No, it, it, was, it was a very good read, very good read. In the book, you define data profiling as uh, the way in which insurers will use big data and predictive analytics 
for the purpose of, in particular, underwriting. Mm. Uh, could you expand upon that a little bit and, and explain why is data profiling so relevant for insurers? Sure. So, as we all know, underwriters are, of course, concerned with the assessment of risk. And the more knowledge about the proposed insured and the risk for which he, she or it is seeking cover, the more accurately that underwriters will be able to assess and ultimately to price that risk. And as more and more insurers begin to rely on big data, and as the profiling of each individual insured becomes more nuanced, the better able that insurers will be to cherry pick the good risks and avoid the bad risks. And in future, it seems to me that much of the competitive advantage in the insurance industry will reside with those insurers whose own profiling algorithms best assess individual risk. They will survive and thrive, whereas those who end up with the lemons, the bad risks, will exit the market. Yeah. Could you give us some uh, examples of, of the potential sources of, of where insurers might get this data? I can imagine that you know, most people will immediately think of kind of Facebook or, or Twitter or, or the, the social media side of things, but obviously it's much broader than that. Yes. I think the key source of data for present purposes will come from what we describe as the Internet of Things, being a collection of devices connected to the Internet, which allow insurers to gather huge quantities of risk-related data, and often and increasingly so in real time. And I want to give three particular examples of devices connected to the Internet of Things. So increasingly, drivers are often are offered telematics policies, the black boxes in your car that will tell insurers and in real time how you're driving. Uh, secondly, more and more of us are wearing wearable technology, uh, and in particular smartwatches, which gather an array and an, in an increasing array of biometric data, which of course will be relevant to life and health insurers. And thirdly, smart devices in your home. We see the rise of Google's Nest and smart smoke alarms, smart leak detectors, which will obviously be of interest to home and contents insurers. So it's obvious why insurers will be interested in those sources of data, not just to be able to uh, assess the risk, but to enable insureds to become potentially more proactive in taking steps to avoid risk. Yeah, and you're talking about the uh, Internet of Things and obviously the, the telematics, so actually the black box inside the car is is information which which we know we're providing to insurers. Um, but you also mentioned the, the devices that we hold on our, have on our wrists or our arms or whatever when we're out running. And actually it, it's an interesting thought that the, the data that is generated by those items may end up in the hands of our life insurance and, and our life insurers may be setting premiums on the basis of the information which we are ourselves generating, perhaps for a very different reason. Yes, and I don't think enough people are thinking hard enough about the consequences of giving away so much important and sensitive data, often so cheaply. Uh, and there's two sides to that. One is the terms and conditions that you sign up to when you when you buy a Fitbit or a Garmin and so on. Um, and insurers themselves um, may attempt to normalize the use of uh, the data by initially, and we've seen this in part with some of the telematics policy on offer, the prospect of one-way price shifting. So the teaser rates for those who agree to sign up and provide their data, even if they turn out to be worse drivers in the first year, they won't be penalized. They will pay what they would have paid anyway. But with the prospect that if you turn out to be a better driver, you'll get a discount. And over time, as, as those teaser rates become the norm and more and more people get used to giving insurers their data, the expectations and the norms just will be that this is part of the process that feeds into risk assessment in ordinary com consumer insurance. Big data is obviously relevant when it comes to underwriting. One can obviously see how underwriters, when assessing a risk, will want to know 
as much as they can about a particular insured, but can it also be relevant to the handling of claims as well? Yes, absolutely. If if claims handlers have access to data that's available in real time, it may often provide a much more complete picture against which insurers can investigate the claims they receive. So think about the data available from a telematics box. Insurers will be able to tell precisely when the accident occurred, at what speed the insured was doing when the accident occurred, and, and where precisely the accident occurred. So it should bring real efficiencies in the investigation of claims. But claims handlers are also potentially using a wider source of data back to your social network works point a few minutes ago, we're starting to see more and more claims handling availing of the data that is available from things like Facebook. It can be a really valuable source of and legitimate source of information in claims investigation. And we saw that a couple of years ago in relation to claims arising out of a pileup on a motorway, ostensibly involving people who are entirely independent of each other. And upon investigation, in particular of their Facebook accounts, it turned out all of those involved were Facebook friends. And on further investigation, turned out that it wasn't the first time that they tried to pull that. <laughs> right. Let's look at some of the, the bigger, more philosophical issues that, that, that flow from that. All of these are, uh, of course, discussed in, in detail in your book. So, you know, and we can only touch upon them now. Um, but the first one, which seems to me, in some respects, the biggest uh, and the one which potentially causes the most problems is uh, the transparency and privacy concerns uh, that, that all of this generates. We've already talked about the vast quantities of information that insurers may hold uh, in, in relation to insureds. And, and that's the exact opposite of what the historic position was. Uh, historically, the insured held all the cards. They knew the risk. They controlled the level of information that was provided to insurers. But with big data, that is reversed. And insurers potentially kind of know more about the insured than the insured knows about themselves. So could you talk us through some of the issues that that reversal of the historical position potentially gives rise to? Well, the first issue relates to the fate of the duty of good faith in the insurance context. And your listeners will all well appreciate that in the UK, the duty of good faith on consumer insureds was abolished by the Consumer Insurance Disclosure and Representations Act 2012. The duty of good faith, of course, survives for commercial insureds further to the Insurance Act 2015, albeit as we know in slightly modified yeah. form. And that may, again, as I say in the book, may well be appropriate in the consume, in the commercial context where, for example, take a professional insured. It might still be the case that risks specific to the conduct of professional business might still be better known to the insured, not the insurer. What the book really grapples with is what these social and technological changes mean for the duty of good faith as it applies to insurers. Mm. Now, although a, a mutual duty the duty of good faith. There has historically been an absolute dearth of cases uh, exploring what the duty required of insurers. And that, of course, reflected the fact, historically, as you've described it, that insureds had the whip hand in relation to knowledge about the risk being presented. But if insurers potentially have as much, if not more, risk-related information than the insured... Uh, what will the duty of good faith require of insurers in the big data age? And the book explores what the duty might look like, including how insurers might be obliged to reveal the basis upon which a particular insured has been priced. And if an insured has a, a right to know what personal information has been processed and a right that only accurate information is used for the purposes of any profiling, a question I ask is, will the duty of good faith absorb those GDPR principles such that they become incidents of the common law duty? And I mean, you touched upon there about the fact that there, there may become a duty upon insurers to disclose to the insured what information they have and, and how they base their 
um, underwriting decision. Um, but another point that you make in the book is when we're dealing with big data, you're dealing with millions of bits of information which are all compressed via algorithms. And the reality is even the insurers may not know the criteria upon which they're making the underwriting decisions. The danger is that we'll be moving to a situation where the computer says yes or the computer says no, and no one really knows why the computer says yes or the computer says no. Yes, I mean, that is, of course, a a practical risk. But again, this is where, in the first instance, the GDPR informs the debate. Uh, In the first instance, it's no defence for insurers or any other users of big data to say, oh, well, the data sets we're passing are so vast, we ourselves don't know how our algorithms are producing the outputs they're producing. Your own opacity is no is no defense. So you, you're going to have to, as a, an insurance, somebody otherwise taking decisions on the basis of uh, algorithmic analysis, understand the bases on which those decisions are being taken. And of course, the GDPR also deals with decisions that are taken on a purely automated base or a largely automated base. And it provides remedies for individuals to have a human look at decisions which are taken on on those bases. So there are safeguards, but insurers would be very well advised to, in advance of launching an algorithm across a big data set, to test those algorithms, to see how they're working, to avoid things like discrimination, which no doubt we'll come back to. But also there's a concern over the data sets themselves. If you're building algorithms on a data set that contains loads of data from one cohort of your target insureds and not another, you might have a baked in bias in that data already. Yeah. Another point that you make in the book is the fact that the big data is great at correlating but it doesn't work out causation. So just to use a silly example, you know, Spurs fans, according to you know, an analysis of all motor accidents over the last however many years, it may prove that Spurs fans are safer drivers than Arsenal fans. But that doesn't mean, and you cannot conclude from that, that being a Spurs fan causes you to be a safer driver. So even where there's correlation, it may be dangerous for insurers to create an algorithm on the basis of that correlation because it may not actually represent Causation. Yes, big data operates by reference to correlation, not cause, and that can give rise to problems, of course. If insurers were tempted to use a range of new proxies, for example, credit risk someone poses, who they associate with, where they shop, and so on, uh, you might find that you are assuming a certain profile, risk profile of that individual that they may not have. And that seems to me to, to run counter to the promise that big data holds, namely that you you can much more accurately assess and risk profile an individual insured by reference to data that pertains actually to that individual. But if suddenly the price is set by a correlation, that price may refer to an aggregated set of data that may not be reflective of the actual risk profile of that individual. Yeah. Although to an extent, that is what we've got at the moment. And after the transparency and privacy concerns, you talk about information symmetries and segmentation of the market. And it's the segmentation of the market that I'm I'm particularly fascinated by because let's use a very crass example and and far more simplistic than is actually the case. But you may well have motor insurance that is currently split with young male, older male, young female, older female. And in that situation, simply because you are young and young and male, you are penalized irrespective of how good a driver you are. Mm -hmm. So any increased use of data 
should uh, allow insurers to work out who are the good young male drivers and, and, and price that risk accordingly. So the, the danger that you're discussing about the segmentation and the risk that people are judged by something which isn't a cause of their good or bad driving, but just merely correlates to their good or bad driving is actually something that exists already, but in a far cruder way. So th- th- is it not the case that we might be getting to a situation with big data where there's much more individual rating of, of risk, which might still be inaccurate, but it's probably a bit more accurate than what we have at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Insurance has, even when provided by private insurers on private markets, in contrast to insurance provided by the state, operated on what you might describe as a broadly social model. And what I mean by that is individual risk was pooled. And in your example, the the driver example, once upon a time you were assessed on the basis of a very limited number of criteria or metrics. So as you say, age, sex, your driving or claims history, and perhaps the model of the car. And many of us were categorized as a certain type of risk based upon those limited number of metrics. So there were a large number of people in a relatively small number of risk pools. And of course, that led to the good risks, the good drivers, subsidizing the poor drivers. So again, coming back to one of the the real promises of big data, if you can more accurately price risk and price cover, the good insureds will no longer be subsidizing the bad insureds. But there's, of course, a a further flip side to that, in that there's a greater risk of a lack of access to those who are now found to be the worst risks. And access is one of the the themes of the book. But that's what I mean when I talk about the use of big data giving rise to greater and greater market segmentation. And it follows that the logical consequence of that is a fundamental change to the model of insurance. When we're moving from a system of pooled risk, risk to a system where risk is individually assessed. This social nature, the social model of risk that we see even in private insurance markets disappears. Yeah. And that then means that insurance, which is historically a responsive thing, so people will do things at various levels of risk and insurers will insure it, but it actually becomes a, a driver of reduced risk. So the good drivers will want to become better drivers because their policies will go down and the bad drivers will either give up driving altogether or they will have to learn how to be better drivers. So the use of insurance actually drives behaviour rather than what has always historically been the case where behaviour drives the insurance. Yes, and you've got this situation where those who thought they were good drivers (laughs) now having it confirmed that they might be good drivers and being able to access better prices, whereas those who knew or suspected they were pretty bad risks are suffering the consequences. And it might, again, accentuate this problem of adverse selection within insurance, because the more and more you bring to the surface which individuals are good and bad risks, the better that an individual insurer is at identifying them, the more that that insurer can cherry pick and avoid adverse selection. Um, You touch upon discrimination and whether there should be limits placed on the amount of information that insurers can actually get hold of. You've mentioned GDPR, but the last thing we want is for insurers to be using data related to protected characteristics, for example, to rate insurance. So so what other limitations might there be on on the data that insurers can use? Well, just touching on the point you make about protected characteristics, they're listed in the Equality Act. And if an insurer were to directly rely upon one of those protected characteristics, such as sex, race, religion, orientation, the insurer would be committing direct discrimination. And one would hope that that's mercifully rare. There is a greater risk insurer 
insurers who use uh, risk proxies might end up profiling people in ways that indirectly discriminate against certain groups. And that might be done more or less advertently. You think of the debates that we have in insurance about the use of postcodes on one view, they're entirely relevant, risk-related data. If there are more cars in a particular area being stolen when left on the highway, then you will find that if you fill in a form saying, this is where I'm going to park my car, you might have increased premium. Um, but it might also correlate with an area where a particular ethnic minority might live. And as a group, they are getting insurance on worse terms. So if insurers can be alive to the potential for some of these risk proxies to give rise to prima facie indirect discrimination, they can potentially head it off at the pass. But of course, you can also objectively justify indirect discrimination. So in the postcode example, if insurers can point to data which reveals that more cars are going missing in those areas, then the higher premium seems to me to be justified. So that's that's where the Equality Act claims come in and insurers will have to be, again, alive to how they design algorithms and the data sets over which they're tested. The logical consequence of market segmentation seems to me to be most acutely tested in the context of genetic information. And until October 2018, there was a rolling concordat and moratorium on the use of genetic information and predictive testing. In October 2018, that was replaced by a new code that dealt with genetic testing. Uh, and I had speculated in the book that at this point in time, uh, the use of big data and algorithms was such that insurers may want to have greater access to genetic data. But the code that has been agreed in October 2018 broadly preserves the position that existed under the Concordat, namely um, predictive genetic tests will by and large not be permissibly used to assess risk. There are, of course, exceptions to that. But the overriding concern is the concern that if somebody thinks their predictive genetic tests might be used against them by life insurers or health insurers five, ten years down the mm -hmm. line, they may not take the test at all. And there are obviously public health considerations in all of that. So, so there's a public public duty over and above specific duties that insurers might be interested in the information? Yes, well, the, the public health concerns and the need to incentivize people to test themselves if they think they're at risk of some uh, genetic illness trumps insurers' right even to seek the express consent of an insured to have uh, a particular genetic test undertaken. The one thing which made me laugh, well, made me wryly smile, perhaps, in, from the book, was the, the fact that all of these new developments inevitably create new ways in which people can be fraudulent. And I, I enjoyed the story about the, the person <laughs> kind of putting Fitbits on, on triathletes or things like that, so that uh, the information that's being fed through to life assurers make, make it look as though you're infinitely healthier than, uh, than uh, you are in reality. So presumably, there'll always be ways in which people try and game the system. Yes, and it's. I think it's a real risk. Imagine your uh, couch potato gets his mate, who's quite sporty, to wear his Fitbit and to get his steps in. And I, I give this example because we, we see some policies, more particularly in America, where if you hit certain fitness metrics, you can get a reduction on the excess to your policy or a reduction in the premium on renewal. So there's a temptation there to get your steps in and meet the other metrics by nefarious means. And it seems to me that there is 
another risk in that insurers' response to this is is likely to be a demand for even more personal and sensitive biometric data. So there are some metrics like resting heart rate and which can be relied upon to specifically identify Peter Mansfield. And if if you give your watch to somebody else and they go out and they do 10 laps of the track, they will know that's not Peter Mansfield because the, the data generated in that point of time doesn't correlate with the biometric data that you have provided. And that brings its own risks. Uh, the more sensitive personal data you give, the more one might be concerned about the pr- privacy implications, notwithstanding the assurances that insurers might give that it, it is only used for risk-related assessments. So, yes, there is a risk of fraud, but the consequence of that risk of fraud might be a risk that you are expected just to give over more of you your data. You get more data. Yeah. Yeah, more data. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, your book goes on to discuss uh, how big data is likely to affect insurance law and regulation, and we can't discuss that now. But just briefly, uh, and we've already touched upon the, the duty of good faith, but it, it would be interesting uh, to get your views on, on how you predict that the duty of good faith will go. <laughs> well, I think... It's interesting. There's there's two stages to the analysis. First of all, given that there is no longer a remedy for the breach of the duty, a first threshold question is, in circumstances where the common law has always operated by reference to remedies, the remedy drives the duties. Yeah. So so when you say there's no remedy, it's because because from the position of an insured against an insurer, it's not in the insured's interest to avoid the policy. Absolutely. So you want the policies to survive to sue on it, e.g. for damages, except at the moment that is not provided for in, in either act. And so the question will be, first of all, is there a duty? And I argue in the book that there is a duty, notwithstanding that there's no remedy. But secondly, how might the common law develop remedies? And there's a discussion where I consider the principles underpinning the GDPR. So I think in the long term, the courts will accept that the duty bites on insurers and will have to grapple with the question of whether a remedy should be afforded and if so, what that should look like. Most obviously, should it be a, should there be a damages remedy? And So I, I think it's difficult, but I think there is a very principled set of reasons why the duty will develop along broadly GDPR lines and why some sort of damages remedy ought to ensue as a matter of common law. And, uh, you know, if, if anyone has a particular case, then I, I know a barrister who'd be... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the plug. Uh, it would be super interesting to do. <laughs> and, and before we end, another plug. Um, I just want to remind everyone that the, uh, the book, uh, Brendan's book, is called Data Profiling and Insurance Law, and it's a damn good read, available from all good bookshops, um, or, in fact, more accurately, available from probably no good bookshops, but from online, online retailers. Yes. Um, anyway, I wholeheartedly recommend it. So, so if you're interested in these sorts of issues, please get a hold of it. Um, now, finally, Brendan, your career journey is likely to have been different for most of the people listening to the podcast, but uh, I'm, I'm nonetheless interested in knowing what bit of advice would you give to someone starting out on their career, particularly someone getting involved with insurance? Well, perhaps this is obvious, but do what interests you uh, and preferably do that which is also interesting. Um, I've always found that the most fun is to be had at the boundaries or intersections of different areas of the law. 
and it's it was in the context of trying to bring together insurance and data that the idea for the book was born so don't get caught up in siloed thinking um and you'll be all right <laughs> brendan McGurk, that is absolutely wonderful fascinating stuff thank you very much indeed thanks peter oh just before you go dear listener i've got some late news for you on 22nd of october 2020 it was announced that brendan's book data profiling and insurance law had won the prestigious British Insurance Law Association Book of the Year 2020. Many, many congratulations to Brendan. Bye. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts, and of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes.